Heavy rains hit the region this week, taking a toll in some places. In others, beloved summer traditions have kicked off for the first time since the pandemic began. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. You might have been able to get one before, but you probably didn't know that it was illegal. Tenured faculty at New York colleges is still mostly white men. We'll talk to University at Albany President Javidan Rodriguez about his efforts to change that. I just don't think that there's a, a silver bullet that you can throw out there and say, OK, we're going to hire diverse faculty and then just make the announcement. Nearly four years after closing in fear of retribution from the regime of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the capital region's Turkish Cultural Center has reopened. And they feel like the clear and present danger has maybe declined a little bit. And with names like Tis the Law and Bodacious Tatas, I can't even say that without giggling, how exactly are racing thoroughbreds named? Flat fleet feet flies four furlongs in 44 and 4. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's go over what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com with editor Casey Seiler. This week, there was a bit of weather that caused a bit of damage. Can you give us the latest updates there? Yeah, Wednesday afternoon and into Wednesday evening, really punishing amounts of rain fell throughout the region. Um, And in some areas, there was a downpour, but not a lot of damage. But in some places, it was as much as five inches of rain in parts of Rensselaer County, where there was extensive flooding around areas such as Burden Lake and Averill Park, a lot of road damage. Uh, as we are talking Thursday morning, there are a lot of people who are having to dodge around pavement that was kind of stripped away by, by flowing water. It's uh, an indication of exactly how much rain we've gotten over the course of the last couple of weeks. It's been an atrociously wet summer so far. And uh, hopefully, as we approach the weekend, we will be coming out of it. But there are a lot of road crews and town and village supervisors and, and county officials who are dealing with a considerable amount of damage right now. And there are some really good photos of some of that damage on timesunion.com. So be sure to check them out. All right, moving over to the state, there seemed to be an issue this week with a discrepancy, if you will, between the number of COVID-19 deaths reported by the state versus the federal count. Can you give us more details on that? Yeah, Marina Villeneuve of the Associated Press wrote a very good story noting that the Federal Centers for Disease Control counts 54,000 people in New York who have died from COVID-19 as a cause or a contributing factor that was listed on their death certificate, whereas the state has a number that stands at this point around 43,000. The Cuomo administration's count, she noted, includes only laboratory-confirmed COVID-19 deaths at hospitals, nursing homes, and adult care facilities. That leaves out people who died at home or in hospice, in state prisons, 
or state-run homes for people living with disabilities. And as Chris Churchill noted in his most recent column, it's what appears to be another maddening example of the Cuomo administration undercounting and trying to kind of present a pretty to up, to a certain extent, picture of uh, the toll of COVID-19 across the state. Of course, federal investigators in the Eastern District of Brooklyn are looking into the state's handling of the pandemic as it raced through nursing homes and whether or not a Department of Health directive uh, contributed to the spread back um, during the, the first spike. And it's yet another reason for people to unfortunately look somewhat askance at the figures that are supposed to be durable that are coming out of state agencies. Yes, and I'm sure we will be following that quite closely um, as time moves on. All right, so this week the Saratoga Racetrack is opening its meet for the first time in two years. However, the night before the opening, which was on Thursday, uh, we're talking about Wednesday night here, there was a bit of a clash between Saratoga Springs protesters and police that uh, is an issue that we've been covering for the last two weeks or so, kind of finally came to a head. Can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, this was a protest that was staged uh, on Wednesday uh, afternoon and evening by protesters in Saratoga Springs. And as noted, it comes about two weeks after a press conference that was held by the assistant police chief, John Catone, in which he he basically blamed uh, a couple of violent incidents in the city on Black Lives Matter protesters. What he said was kind of a schism that they were creating between the public and the police. A lot of people denounced this and criticized it, saying it was nothing more than a racist dog whistle. And it was an attempt by the police chief to shut down speech uh, that he did not like. The chief on Wednesday put out a statement in which he said that he allowed anger and frustration to interfere with my intended message and that he was not attempting to, in fact, shut down anybody's speech. The protest that began just after that included about 30 protesters and was greeted by about 20 law enforcement officers. And it looked like there were both city police and county officers in tactical gear. And they essentially uh, pushed the protesters down Broadway towards Congress Park. It looks like there were about a half dozen arrests, but it's an indication that racial tensions between activists and law enforcement in the city continue. All right. One last topic here, uh, an interesting one. Can you get a haircut on a Sunday now in New York State? Happily, yes. You might have been able to get one before, but you probably didn't know that it was illegal. A more than century old example of what are known as the state's blue laws that essentially were put in place to kind of protect the Sabbath, Sunday in this case, uh, specifically, you know, these go back to laws that, uh, you know, shut down bars back in the day and, you know, prevented liquor sales on Sundays. So this one, which was strange, prevented shaves and haircuts in New York on Sundays. Apparently, it might have been related to the fact that barbershops were seen as being easy places to get a drink in addition to getting a trim. A bill that was proposed was signed into law by, by Governor Cuomo. 
uh, with a lot of uh, haircut and shave puns in the press release that went along with it. But yes, and it was pitched as a way for businesses to take control and uh, determine their fate as they try to rebound from the pandemic. So yes, if you feel the need, go get your hair done on Sunday. I'm sure we had a lot of fun trimming that headline. Ha, ha, ha. (laughs) All right, Casey, thank you so much. We'll check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can read more about all the stories and issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. According to recent data from the U.S. Department of Education, women and people of color teaching at New York institutions are far less likely than their male and white peers to earn the distinction of tenure. Times Union education reporter Rachel Silberstein recently spoke with University at Albany President Javidan Rodriguez about the university's efforts to increase diversity among its tenured faculty. Here's a bit of their conversation. I know this is something that's close to your heart and you're working with SUNY on. So I was hoping you could maybe shed some light on why you think, why is it so hard to make that leap and get to tenure? This issue of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion is is critically important uh, for institutions of of higher education. And clearly, we need to make much more progress than than, than we've made. And actually, when you look in general uh, at higher education and diversifying the faculty in higher education, particularly tenured and tenure track, if you've gotten numbers, you've probably seen that, you know, we basically made no progress, a little to no progress in the past decade, right? It's been a it's been a major challenge. Our Despite all these diversity initiatives and grants and funding, none of it seems to work. I do think it works. I just don't think that there's a, a silver bullet that you can throw out there and say, okay, we're going to hire diverse faculty and then just make the announcement and, and that's it. Uh, you know, we have evidence and, and, and you'll be seeing uh, in some of the searches that we're conducting here at, at UAlbany that uh, if there is a, a holistic uh, focus, right? If there is a strategic focus in terms of diversifying your faculty and your staff, it's difficult and it's a challenge. I'm not saying that, but I think I think you can move uh, the needle uh, forward, but it's not a one measure fits everybody, but you really have to look at this holistically uh, as an institution. What do you believe is the advantage of having diverse uh, tenured faculty in terms of women and people of color, in terms of the type of research that's produced and and in terms of how it affects the classroom? I, I think it's critically important, right? I think, you know, research has shown that a diverse workforce, whether it's in higher education or outside of higher education, is a much more engaging workforce. It's a much more productive uh, workforce. It's a much more collaborative workforce. So those are three key elements that are critically important for me. Uh, I also know, and we also know, right, that, like I said before, 38% of our students are underrepresented minority students, right? And yet they don't see themselves necessarily reflected, right, in our faculty or staff because only 10% of our faculty are underrepresented minority uh, uh, faculty. So we also need to diversify that pool of faculty so students see role models represented there, right? That these are people who are professionals who made it to a faculty member or a tenured, tenure track who have made great accomplishments and great contributions 
applications uh, to the field and students can see these faculty members as role models, as mentors who will help them navigate uh, higher education because they've been through similar experiences, right? Like I've yeah. been through many of the experiences that my students at UAlbany have been through. I can identify with those issues and those challenges. And I believe that I can serve as a mentor. And I believe that I have uh, experiences that can help those students think about, wow, you know, uh, you can grow up in the Bronx or Brooklyn or Puerto Rico. And look, you can, you can go a long way and make a big difference if you work and you devote yourself uh, to being successful, but they need to see uh, those role models. And that is what is critically, it's important. As well as you mentioned, the research that these yeah. faculty uh, conduct, right? Uh, as you know, we, we've had uh, some press releases recently on the amazing work that UAlbany has done on the disproportionate impacts of COVID-19 on communities of color, right? That's mm -hmm. been due to our deliberate focus on, on uh, minority health, on uh, health equity, uh, our Center for the Elimination of Minority Health Disparities, right? We've got great strengths. That's also a result of our very uh, diverse faculty and our interest in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Talk about pipelines a lot, but it, I think the research shows that hasn't moved the needle very much over the years. So as I said, right, it is, it, 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 the pipeline is critically important because if those students don't graduate from high school, they're not going to make it to college. They're not going to make it to be yeah. faculty members. So pipeline is critically important, but the pipeline by itself uh, doesn't occur willy-nilly, right? Uh, yeah. For example, a long time ago, I led a program uh, funded by the Ford Foundation focused on minority opportunities through school transformation program. And it was really literally about building uh, those pipelines to ensure that students receive effective mentoring, advising, support, guidance, uh, to navigate through uh, higher education. But it is about uh, the concerted efforts of the university, whether it be at UAlbany, through our strategic plan, through our diversity committees, now through the SUNY Prodigy uh, uh, funding, now through the NSF uh, Advanced Adaptation Grant. So it's mm -hmm. gotta be uh, uh, in our climate committees, right? When you pull all these things together, then you're telling a, a whole story about the commitment of the institution, the strategies and the initiatives that we are developing and the focus on concrete outcomes, right? So it's mm -hmm. not one single step, it's a process. And it's dynamic, it's changing, but it has to be holistic. And everybody needs to buy in. This is not the commitment of the president. It needs to be the commitment of the provost. It needs to be the commitment of the deans, of the department chairs, of the faculty. And then you're talking about, you know, making important uh, progress and significant difference. Like money was something that came up a lot when I talked to graduate students who are, you know, pre-tenure, like, or faculty, like, is it, have you changed your reimbursement style or done anything to make to smooth that process? You know, people are still paying off their grad school loans when they're trying to get tenure. Funding is critically important, particularly, right? With, again, going back to, you know, yeah. we've got 38% of our students are underrepresented minority students, one third of first generation, one third of first are low income students, right? So money is a factor to ensure that they make it through college. That's why, for example, the, the capital campaign uh, that we just completed last year, one of the primary focuses was on scholarships and, and funding and, and fellowships, right? So that's key in order to ensure that uh, college 
is affordable. We've invested significant funding in terms of institutional funding as well in providing scholarships to our students at the undergraduate and graduate level. We just created an endowment for the Educational Opportunity Program, the EOP program. It's a $1 million endowment. As you may know, these are students that are first-generation, low-income students, underrepresented minority students. And by the way, this program at UAlbany, which is one of the largest in SUNY system, uh, we're close to a little bit over 800 students. Uh, their retention rates are 92, 93%, way above uh, the national average and way above the average for students generally at UAlbany. Their graduation rates are higher, their success rates are higher. So you take that endowment money and you invest it in these types of programs, you're going to have a significant difference. But yes, money and funding is critically important, but without commitment, strategy, right? Yeah. You have all the money in the world, uh, you're not going to move forward. Do you think it'll be a snowball effect as people, as they climb the ranks of academia, they are reviewed by their peers? You think as their peers become more diverse, it'll be much easier, the path will get easier, their, their research will be valued more and all this, you know, the, the path will be cleared a little bit. I, I think so. I think that, you know, also having, uh, you, you know, at the end of the day for faculty, you've got to judge their scholarship, you've got to judge, right, their contributions uh, yeah. to their field, uh, to their departments, the college and the institution. But when you have like-minded people, people that have been through similar experiences, people that are publishing in the same journals, people that are doing similar research, right, you've got, you, you begin to develop a better understanding of the work of, uh, of scholars, particularly scholars of color. And, and I think uh, that's been part of the issue uh, in higher education, a lack of understanding of the critical importance of the work uh, that many uh, faculty of color are doing. And we need to change our mindset in that regard as well. After the break, the region's Turkish Cultural Center is back. And what's the story behind horse names in thoroughbred racing? Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. The Capital Region's Turkish Cultural Center has reopened as the Albany Community Center in Rensselaer this week. The group of Turkish Americans who ran the center closed it more than three years ago. At the time, they feared retribution from supporters of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, whose regime was aggressively cracking down on free speech and anti-government sentiment. Now, Erdogan's hold on the country has loosened significantly, and members of the community here in the capital region feel the time was right for a fresh start. Times Union columnist Paul Grondel has written extensively about Turkish culture here, and I spoke to him about the new community center. Tell me a little bit about the history behind it. 
I've known them and written about them since they, they established here, probably 2009. Really interesting group of people, highly educated, highly professional professors, engineers, researchers. The, the group here was affiliated with the Hizmet movement, which is a peaceful, more of an ecumenical, less of a, a hardline Muslim group than you might see normally in Turkey. So this group was was kind of always a bit of an outlier, and, and they were followers, not really followers, but they read and, and embraced the teaching of Fatula Gulen, who was a writer, a cleric, a Muslim leader, who was actually very close and an ally and a colleague uh, and a collaborator with President Erdogan, the president of Turkey, who in the last several years has turned very authoritarian kind of mindset of Xi in China and Putin in Russia has shut down any free press, imprisons and harasses critics, including the followers of this Gulen, this movement. So Gulen left in exile. He lives in Pennsylvania, but his group sort of carries on the work. They have schools. They do feed uh, poor people. They have uh, emergency uh, ambulances and services. They're, they're kind of a uh, an all-purpose, do-good organization. But he was critical of Erdogan's leaning towards this authoritarian crackdown role, and then everything kind of spiraled. There was a coup in Turkey in 2017. After that, he came after anyone uh, affiliated with Gulen because he's convinced that Gulen was stirring the seeds and even fomenting this this coup. Um, he's denied it. U.S. refuses to extradite him back to Turkey, and that's kind of where it at where it's at now. But the collateral damage has been groups like uh, these Turkish Americans in in the capital region have been harassed, threatened, uh, under surveillance. And they had to shut down. They basically went underground. They shut down the Turkish Cultural Center for the last nearly four years. And it's reopened under a new name, the Albany Community Center in Rensselaer. And I was there at their housewarming, reopening, grand opening on Sunday. And it was really beautiful. What led them to decide to reopen? You know, it's been essentially four years and they feel like the clear and present danger has maybe declined a little bit. Erdogan has his hands full in his own country. He's showing signs of weakness. He's losing some seats in government. He's losing some power. The economy there is cratering. Certainly COVID accelerated that. So he's got his own worries and they don't feel like he's going to be concerned about a group in Albany as much. But many of the people that I've known and and spoken with, uh, I should say that my daughter Caroline and I uh, went to Turkey in 2016. Azra Haki, our colleague at the Times Union, was part of that. Uh, there were eight other people. And they've been leading these kind of cultural exchange tours of Turkey for several years. Um, some of our local legislators went. And we really learned a lot about the beauty, the history, the culture of Turkey. It really sits as a bridge between East and West, between Asia and uh, the the East and, and uh, Europe and the West. And for many years, it was seen as a very moderate Islamic country, uh, uh, sort of a a peacemaker, as you would, in the region. And uh, then this president, Erdogan, kind of turned it 
into a, a much more authoritarian state. And that's been uh, a big problem and why many of the families in our region came to uh, the capital region in the first place. Now, how big is the population of Turkish Americans here in the capital region? Probably, you know, f- maybe 300 families. So it's not as large as some of our other you know, communities that way. But it, really, the reason for the center is to preserve culture like so many first and second generation uh, ethnic groups that come to this area. You know, their children are losing the ability to speak Turkish. They're losing the ability to cook Turkish food the way they cooked at home. So it's like many organizations that you see around, you know, the Polish Community Center, the Italian-American Community Center, the Russian Community Center. It's really to preserve their culture, but they also did more outreach than other groups that I've known and written about in the area. They often had many dinners. Wow. And you said that some of the folks who live in the region here were being actively monitored? Yeah. Within the local Turkish community, there's some people that actually like Erdogan's tough crackdown stance. You know, it's not a monolithic culture as the United States isn't. So they were also getting internally people reporting back uh, that they were following Gulen and they were speaking critically of Erdogan. And then they're very worried because many, almost all of them, still have family members in Turkey, in Istanbul or Ankara. Some of them have one of the... the the new director's brother's been in prison for six years. He was a teacher teaching some of Glenn's uh, books and writings. I'm, I'm impressed by the local Turkish people that I've gotten to know that are part of this center. Their resilience, they're standing up, and they're doing the hard work of preserving what they believe is a democracy and what they need to do. You know, they're not just rolling over and staying underground. They're opening up again, and they're doing it with pride. And what was really also nice to see is there's a lot of children there. You know, they're so happy to let their children play with other Turkish children and speak Turkish and, and eat the food and, and be with, you know, three generations. It's, it's a nice thing. The summer meet at the Saratoga Racetrack is underway this week. The historic course opened its gates to fans for the first time in about two years. In the first few days, horses are running with names the likes of a wagon boss, everyone loves Linda, what do you think now, and treason. How do they get those names? Times Union sports writer Abigail Rubel explained it to me. So I'm not much of a track goer. I've been now and again, uh, and I definitely don't study any of the handicap lists or anything like that. My strategy for picking horses, <laughs> picking winners, I go down the list of, of horses and I just pick the one with the greatest name. So I think I picked a horse named YYY one year for really no apparent reason. And it did quite well for me. I ended up, you know, <clears throat> getting some money on that race. So you wrote about how to name a racehorse. So where did you start when you uh, researched this story? Well, the first thing I did was read the Jockey Club's extensive list of rules on the subject. The Jockey Club is the organization that governs horse racing in America. Uh, It keeps a registry of all the names. And it has a lot of rules regarding what you can and cannot do with your horse. For example, the most uh, onerous rule probably is that 
you can't name a horse the same thing or even a similar thing to a horse that's currently breeding or racing. And it takes, I believe, five years for those names to clear. So once a horse stops breeding or racing, it's five years before you can use that name again. And there are a lot of horses. Yeah, but then there's also the rule that you can't name a horse after another horse that was like uber famous, like say Seabiscuit or even American Pharaoh or something, right? Yeah, so horses, any horses in the Racing Hall of Fame, any horse that's been voted Horses of the Year that's won one of a few prestigious awards, any horse that's won more than $2 million, any horse that's won the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, the Belmont, the Breeders' Cup Classic, or the Breeders' Cup Turf, any of those can't name a horse that. So no no more secretariats. That seems pretty limiting. But then again, there are some really funny, clever, interesting horse names out there. So how do you name a horse? Well, one of the most common strategies, uh, according to Jack Knowlton, who's the managing partner of Sakatoga Stable, which owns Tis the Law and uh, Funny Side is probably their most famous horse. What they do and what a lot of people do is they try to incorporate the names of the horse's parents, the sire and the dam in horse racing parlance. So tis the law, for example, father was constitution and the mother was tis fizz. And so they combined those two to get tis the law. Uh, With funny side, you have uh, the father distorted humor and the mother bells good side, C-I-D-E. That's pretty common. You get other owners who do, who have uh, businesses outside of horse racing and bring that into their horses. For example, Roddy Valente owns a quarry. And so a lot of his horses have, you know, stone themed names or, you know, quarry themed names. Interesting. Sounds like a bit of uh, free marketing thrown in there as well. Yeah, absolutely. You also get owners who try to sneak names past the Jockey Club. The Jockey Club also has a rule that names can't be suggestive, vulgar, in poor taste, uh, things like that. Caesar Kimmel was a particularly famous one who was mischievous. Uh, he had horses named Titular Feast, uh, Bodacious Tatas, Colder Than a <laughs> Witches. I mean, it's. They were really skirting the line there. <laughs> Skirt, yeah, skirting was a little generous. Uh, I don't know how this got past the jockey club, but he was very, he was, that was sort of his calling card were those sorts of names. That's funny. Now, when it comes to the folks who announce the races, you talked to a couple of announcers of the races about how they feel about some of the names. What did you learn there? Yeah, well, Caesar Kimmel strikes again with the announcers. Both of the ones I talked to mentioned a horse, Flat Fleet Feet. Tongue twister. It's easy enough to read or to say, you know, when we're talking here, but if you're narrating a very fast paced race, uh, it gets tricky. Yes, they do talk quite fast. Yeah. Uh, Tom Durkin, who was a longtime race caller, said he remembered saying, Flat fleet feet flies four furlongs in 44 and four, which I can barely say talking to you. And he said, uh, It was as if I was saying to Cesar Kimmel, Is that all you got? <laughs> Say that ten times faster. <laughs> I couldn't. I don't. I, I couldn't. 
it, that's definitely a mouthful. And if they teach you anything in broadcasting school, it's to speak slow. But, you know, as an announcer of a horse race, you can't really do that. So do you have any favorite horse names that you either had in the past or, you know, developed in researching and writing this article? Well, aside from Kimmel's names, which obviously stuck out the most, uh, one that actually I wasn't able to mention in the article was Bustin' Stones, uh, which mm-hmm. is one of Roddy Valente's horses, of course, Stones, because of his quarry. Uh, I, I like that one quite a bit. That's pretty clever. One Saratoga horse that's running uh, Viking Zim. I like that one a lot. After hearing what you're saying here and, and what you've written, I don't think I'm going to change my strategy at all. I'm still going to go by the coolest horse name. Well, you also get owners uh, like Terry Finley, who helps run uh, West Point Thoroughbreds, who really do try to give their horses names that reflect like their uh, strength and talent. So not always the worst bet. <laughs> That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. And special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Rachel Silberstein, Paul Grondel, and Abigail Rubel for their reporting and contribution to this episode. <laughs>